I'm Mariangela Abeo, and this is the Face to Faces podcast, a conversation series that provides a platform focusing on the LGBTQ plus and POC communities and their allies in the areas of activism, politics, mental health, arts and entertainment, and community, where we discuss the human experience in our ever-changing world. The goal of this space is to remind you that while you may have moments where you feel isolated or alone, there is always an incredible community of people here that is safe. We all connect to people at our deepest pains and our greatest joys. And in this space, we're here for those moments and everything in between. I'm so glad you're here. Take a seat next to me. It's always open. Now, let's lean in. Okay, here we are with my dear friend of like three years now, Eaton, who is arguably probably one of the first people I had email me for this project for Faces of Fortitude. And we have been talking for years, evolving together, growing together. Eaton is an artist, a father, a survivor, and an educator, a teacher. I can't believe we're finally doing this. Welcome, Eaton. I'm so excited to have you. I'm so excited. You know, dreaming about this moment and then actually being in it are so different. I'm just like, is this like that butterfly feeling she got right before the TED talk? It's got to be like times a million because like you're in front of people. But uh, it's exciting. To I mean, get we've it. talked so many times and sent voice messages and, and we've watched each other grow over the last three years. But like, I feel like this is the first time. Is this the first time we've talked like live? I think live, yeah. I think we only talk on the phone out like maybe a handful of times because that time difference yeah, is like, you know, yeah. it sucks to navigate. Yeah, well, I'm excited that people get to meet you. I think that, you know, I'm a very different person from when this project started and you're a very different person. The three years, like who knew that that would have been the perfect time between when I reached out to you and here all the stuff in between has been like, oh, now we definitely got to talk and record it and, you know, really give it to everyone else because so many things have happened um, from that time. I was like, I remember writing the initial email, like, oh, I don't even know this person. How do I, how do I know how much to say? Uh, I just let it go. And, you know, look to, to let it go and to get here with it. It's like, yeah. I'm looking it's up exciting. your email because you're, do you remember how <laughs> amazing your email to me was? You know, do you remember you were so I got a lot of emails those first few months. And I, to be honest, I was a little bit overwhelmed. Yeah. And so there was a lot of I read a lot of sob stories and I read a lot of not that they're not valid, but it gets you know, you kind of get tunnel vision after a while when you're reading so much sadness, you need to like pull away. And then this email came in. And all it said was I want <laughs> to be a face. And I'm like, gosh, you called me M and then you said, gosh, that opening feels very James Bondish, but a little about me. And then you go into this kind of lovely ramble of like who you are with thoughtful words. And I was like, first of all, A, he used a thesaurus, maybe. <laughs> B, I'm just so excited about how, how like dark, it was dark, but like equally 
uh, very delightful. It was dark and delight. You are dark and delightful. Does that work? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it because I was in a state of near panic writing it because I'm so self-conscious whenever I have to write because I'm so great at speaking. At least I feel that way. A lot of people are like, you're crazy. I don't want to talk to you. So when I'm writing, I have that nervousness and what I'm trying to communicate at the same time. So it's like, how do you find that middle ground? That's probably the sixth or seventh version I actually hit send on because I wrote some other stuff. It was like, okay, not this. Okay, not this. All right, let me reread it. Okay, this one. We'll go with this one. And then, you know, you kind of close your eyes and hit send and hope for the best. And um, that's how we got here. You basically said something but it's to crazy. the effect of like um, something about as normal as you being left-handed. And I was like, yes, that got me. That got me. I, <laughs> I felt that and I loved it and it was so good. So either way, the universe makes all these things happen the way that they're supposed to. It does. So the first thing I like to do before we start this whole thing, because I think we're going to, we're going to do the faces portion a little bit later and we're going to break this up into two episodes, but I want to check in with how you're doing now, because you know, you and I have talked personally, as far as COVID goes, you're an educator. Tell everybody what you do, what kind of teacher you are, what you teach and, and what the status of that is right now. Uh, I would love to, claim that I'm a teacher. I don't think being a sub really counts, but then again, uh, you never know. But um, I think for me, I'm still, what helps me a lot is that I'm still young enough to remember, um, you know, middle school, which is kind of primarily my focus. So those memories allow me to kind of stay in the moment and realize like, okay, so I don't need to be this harsh on this. So maybe that's my teaching is, you know, in between the bells, in between classes, um, because I was really, you know, aftercare staff. And I loved aftercare. It's a little less structured, um, but it still has its own kind of flow you want to give to it. So I had a uh, uphill battle to you always got to just like you see in any movie about kids with school. They always try to break the new teacher. Once you get past that phase, it can be a lot of fun. So um, we were having, you know, just like just like all the movies, you know, you have a rough start. The kids don't know you. You don't know them. And then you have a breakthrough moment. And for me, that breakthrough moment kind of came, you know, one day after in aftercare, we got everybody playing together, like and kids who didn't even want to participate in gym or asking if they can play. And, you know, we got the whole middle school playing together and they're like, what's going on over there? And I was like, oh, this is the turning point in the movie. This is where like, you know, there comes the, the montage where they cut out all the audio, but the song and you see the teacher bonding with each student. So, you know, we had that moment and right, <laughs> right before we have like the end of the year graduation, you know, you see the whole movie, the year is going good. They're doing great. You know, the basketball team's undefeated. So they, sh- they have the exposition of the, you know, the newspaper showing them, you know, in black and white. So, and then COVID happened and, you know, it was a sad day for all of us. And, you know, my school is kind of great and really not being prisoner of the moment in a negative way. Um, once we kind of got the announcement, the whole school is on the front field um, because we kind of recognize this might be our last moment to you know play together the way we were so accustomed to doing. So that was kind of how COVID came in. I was having a you know an interesting year already. It being really my first year in a you know a teaching role in a you know administrative role. I wore a lot of hats throughout the school year. Um, so. When COVID came, it was kind of like a, hmm, that's something to watch. And then before you know it, it's in your lap. And how you manage that as uh, as an adult, 
with children in school. You know, my oldest daughter's in school. So, and then you have kids who are, you know, middle schools are sharp. Eighth graders are sharp. You know, yeah. they're, they're really just ninth graders who haven't got out of the gate yet. So um, some of their ideas and, you know, theories on, you know, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, they were incredible to listen to. Um, but I did know that everyone was sad that last day. You know, kids who were, if you ask them, how do you feel about aftercare? They'd have the most negative things to say. They were teary-eyed, you know, on the last day because they just didn't want to leave. And it was a tough moment. But, you know, we got through it. And uh, Zoom, oh, my goodness. Imagine if they were paying, you know, you know, a cent a minute. They'd make a killing for how many of us turned to Zoom to kind of, you know, hold on to something like normal. And our, you know, aftercare became aftercare online. Um, and it kind of became, you know, a think tank for those eighth graders. And, you know, as we're all experiencing quarantine for the first time together from various stages and various backgrounds, um, you know, we got to learn a lot and it was, it was, it presented a unique opportunity. I'm glad we got to, uh, kind of go through that together. And, you know, I'm going to be bonded with, you know, the class of 2020 at, at my school for, you know, some time. Oh, I love that. You know, I do think that the the virtual world has kind of caught the kids the most off guard and the ones that rely on being emotionally connected and having that community and having that kind of just separation from your home, from your family. Everybody needs that break. And I was just talking to somebody this morning about how the, um, the suicide and mental health issues have doubled in um, college kids because those kids, especially Absolutely. brand new college kids that are, um, were so excited to get out of the house, were so excited to move away and start on their own for the first time. And now they're just kind of like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. It's so sad. And I had students so who had you know, gone to that school their entire lives and they didn't know any different. So they were, for the first time, were on the cusp of going to a new school. And to have, you know, the kind of culmination of all that time snatched away right at the end of the year, you know, my heart broke for, you know, the eighth graders, especially the ones, like I said, had, you know, grown up there and they were going to, you know, their first time out of the nest and then it's a rainy day and you really want to fly in it. Um, so it's been rough. It's been rough. So like you said, like those numbers, I was, that was one of the things I was saying on the Zoom calls, like you guys find some way to, you know, boost your spirits because, you know, it's going to be rough. It's going to be rough. How is the unrest where you are? Remind me, you're in Virginia. I'm in D.C. Oh, I'm in D.C. You are in the heart of it right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would say, I think for me, I'm not someone who really views protesting as, you know, the vehicle of change that's going to take us across the finish line. Um, I'll say it has its merits. Um, you know, I like to think of it, you know, kind of like a car crash. You know, maybe it doesn't hurt as bad if you can hear the person honking on the way to making that impact because the impact has to happen. But the honking is like, oh, it, you know, it gives you an alert that something's about to happen. So that's kind of how I view protesting. And, you know, if we're going to crash anyway, I'd rather not, you know, waste my horn on, you know, that those few seconds leaning on the horn when I know I'm going to crash anyway. So I'm watching the protest from afar, you know, wishing everyone well. Well, um, and I, I've told people I over, I think process. I told you this a few weeks ago, and I tell people over yeah. and over, let the white people do it. Let the white people protest. Like, <laughs> let, let the white people, let the young white people protest. Let the young youth get their asses kicked, get some gas, you know, some, some pepper sprayed. They're young. They can survive it. 
and they need, you know, cause it's going to be brutal. We know that the protesting is fu- getting fucking right. brutal. And I'm not, I don't know about you, but I was protesting twice a week in the beginning and I had to stop because it was too, my body couldn't handle it. And I've got, you know, a family member with immune deficiency disease. And it's like, I realized really fast that COVID was spiking again in the area. And I was like, I need to, it's scary, but it is helping. Like Seattle protests is moving the needle. Like we are seeing things happen in our local government. That's dope. But it's like, it's so hard because you're watching it and you're like, Oh God, this is so much work. And the needle is just like going like this. (laughs) You're like, Oh yeah. It's just like any other time where you need to leave the house, but your phone isn't fully charged and it seems to be charged at like 1%, you know, every 35 minutes. And you're like, how long is this going to take? You know, I got to get out of here. And that's kind of my view on it too, where it's just like, oh, like when they, I think we had the, um, the curfew. I was like, I know my city. We are not going to abide by a curfew. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was outside sitting on my front steps and, you know, I live close enough uh, I'd say in a good part where I can kind of hear things if it's quiet enough. And that's what quarantine has, you know, kind of lended us on the back end is a lot of quietness, especially in the beginning. I could hear the helicopters flying towards downtown. And I was like, oh, goodness. So as you're watching it on the news about the military helicopter that flew over, you know, the protesters that flew past my house. And I was like, that's not going to be good. That's too big of a helicopter. <laughs> you know, so I just don't want to, you know, like you, I live with someone, you know, that to play the kind of role of caretaker for and be extra cautious you know, my grandfather is, you know, 93 years old. Ooh. That's not a risk I'm going to take, you know, to lose my voice, be physically drained and not, you know, in my opinion, you know, making a difference with a protest or a sign. So I was like, ah, yeah, CNN, you'll, you'll get some time in my house today, you know, and I'll, I'll watch from here. Yeah. And I, and, you but know, I, have, I have lots of friends who went. There are a lot of um, there are a lot of other ways to protest right now. We're learning that there are different facets of it and that we all have to have our voices. We have to email, you know, there's so much happening on a government level and on, on a city official level that we, uh, mm-hmm. we need to practice our, our ways of protest and realize that, I mean, I would prefer the average white person just have one conversation a day with their racist uncles or aunts, because we all know they exist. <laughs> the Karens in their family. Yeah. Like, and I got, I got so much hate online for using the Karen slur, by the way, I want to address this right now. So many people slid into my DM saying, I have so much respect for you. I followed you for so long, but I really think, and all of them were named Karen, by the way. Um, right. Of course. But Fuck you, Karen. Sorry about it. Like if I lose some fans, it's not about that. If you're really focusing and taking it personally, maybe you need to dig a little deeper as to why you're doing that and realize that it has nothing to do with you, sweetie, if you're doing the work like, and everything to do with the yeah. white Karens out there. Yeah. Karen is just a name that got attached to a particular form of behavior, you know, and that happens a lot. You know, we come up with words and phrases that get attached to a pattern of behavior and people get caught up in the, the label as opposed to like what it's talking about. And I'm just, uh, I, I love I have a I have a love hate relationship with the whole Karen thing. You know, I, I got it. I was fully on board with it when it first came out. And then I was working camp at the same school and we're at the beach and someone came a little, you know, a small little family. I believe they were, you know, they all spoke Spanish. So, you know, I'm not sure if they're, you know, where they're from, Colombia, Mexico, you know, El Salvador. I'm not a real conversational person. I didn't ask them. They came and they're playing music on a Bluetooth speaker and the whole family went into the water. 
And that's happening to the left of me in front of me. To the right of me in front of me on the other side is a young lady with her like, you know, son and daughter and they're playing in the water. She's sitting there reading a book fully clothed with like the face shield, the mask and like almost like some type of netting around her. She's got like her COVID kit at the beach. Wow! And I was like, and I was like, oof, you really don't want to catch COVID, but you really don't want to stay inside. I applaud your effort. You know, so I'm, I'm observing all this. And they leave the Bluetooth speaker and the music's blasting. They're blasting it. And I'm just like, oof, that's loud. I hope she doesn't say anything. Almost on cue, she just goes off and she gets up and she walks down to the family. And she's like, if you guys aren't going to be over here, you need to turn down your music. Not everyone likes whatever this is you're playing, Julio. And I was like, oh, God, Karen just went off. And... Like the family came back up there, they cut their music down and, you know, the dad kind of stayed stationary with the stuff. And I was like, wow, that was crazy. But, but I, I was like, the music was loud. It wasn't bothering me, but it was like super loud. We're like in between both of, you know, the kind of, I guess, 50 feet to the right of us, everyone could hear that. And I was like, that is kind of inconsiderate. You know, not everyone's here in the water splashing. You know, there are, you know, an elderly couple down here just kind of quietly slowly taking in the beach you know so i was like yeah but the micro i didn't know what to do and I felt the microaggression comment in hers was that's where i would snatch her wig right off her head and that's what caught my ear because you know i'm watching everything i'm looking at my kids in the water and i'm just like ooh, what did she say like it was like someone hit me in the back of the head with a bottle at the bar you're like okay so there's a fight about to happen okay cool you know <laughs> now my antennas are up you know, because I got, I was like, how can I shield the kids from this altercation that's about to happen right, right. between this fa- these two families? Uh, so, yeah, that Karen thing is, it's interesting. I've seen it go both ways. One of my best friends is white. And, you know, years ago, I would tell him, I was like, bro, you got to use your white privilege to our advantage more often. Because he would be so, he's so aware of it. You know, he kind of taught me about it um, as I've gotten to know him over the years you know, he taught me about the other side. And then, you know, as an added layer of, you know, my personal growth, because, you know, I've, I can't, obviously can't be white and come from money. So I can't know what that's like to grow up in that environment. But he could tell me that. And then his father is also a police officer. And so they're both giving me a perspective I would never have. And these people I've known for a good while now. So I would tell him, I was like, bro, use your white privilege so we can get in here, man. I don't want to stand in line. Like, tell them that our tickets are wrong or something. Like, you know, make a scene. Go in there and do your thing. And he would always feel so guilty about doing it. I'm like, bro, if you're doing it for us, you know, that's one thing. If you're doing it just for yourself, that's a totally different thing. You got to understand where to, you know, that's, that door goes both ways. And it's a now years later, as we're growing up in this, you know, he and I are talking early on the pandemic and we're like, this is not on our top five ways that we thought this is going to be the, you know, the way to get here because, you know, this was always going to be, you know, something we'd have to address but, you know, we didn't think the pandemic would force us into, you know, a kind of bottleneck where, you know, once resources start to become limited, what are your priorities as far as do I protect me and myself or am I going to make sure everyone survives this? And that, you know, to me is the, the finer focus where, yeah, we're talking about racism, but it really comes down to selfishness. Yeah. And I think that the selfishness that needs to be like specifically pinpointed is in the white community, because I think what's happening is we're seeing these microaggressions and we're seeing this 
oh, I'm helping. And I emailed somebody last, my, my council person last week and I, I'm doing fine. And I, I ran, you know, I'm barely, my hours were cut at work too. And I, and I'm hearing all of these little aggressions from people that are like, I'm having a hard time too. And I, I tried right. so hard to gently say, yes, COVID's hard for all of us, but like w there's another layer here that you're not seeing. And so I think it was it, last night, I had a situation just happen last night. I was seeing a friend who was in town from Los Angeles who I have not seen for years, who has, she's, she's a transgender woman, black transgender woman who's gone through a transition over the last five years. She came into my apartment building and I buzzed her in. She came in from the front. She's dressed beautifully, really excited to be there. I buzzed her in and she missed the buzz. And there was a white woman that mm -hmm. lives here in the building. We live in the, like the downtown area. So a homeless man started to harass her out front, calling her, are you a guy? Are you a girl? Like just being horrible. And a woman, a white woman saw her on the inside. She said, please, can you open the door? I just missed the buzzer. And the woman held the door open, closed, held it closed and wouldn't open it. And I, I didn't wow. hear it. And then all of a sudden I was like, I had buzzed her in and I couldn't figure out. And like, bitch, I am the manager of this building. Let me handle this. <laughs> so I didn't see, I, I had buzzed her in, but didn't hear where she went. And so I went out into the hallway and all, this, all I heard three stories down through the stairs was you white Caucasian bitch. And I was like, Ooh, <laughs> Hold on. Let me, I'm coming. I'm coming. What's happening? And she goes, you think because I'm black and trans and standing at the door, I don't deserve to come in. And I was like, Oh, this, and she said, your microaggressions are making me sick to my stomach. And I was like, I was definitely like, I use this reference all the time, but I was definitely Beyonce in the elevator. I was like, oh, I'm going to let this happen for a minute. Like, <laughs> keep going. She deserves every fucking word. And that, that yeah. was a very, it was a teaching moment. She goes, I didn't do anything. I just didn't know she was supposed to come in. And I said, you see a woman being harassed a black trans woman on top of all of that being harassed by a homeless person and you don't let them in what like there's a problem right. your aggression is your fear you're letting you know your whiteness is showing and you know i that that's like when you see that it drives me nuts because like if like just human decency doesn't tell you to you know make a different choice right right like, you know, that's what I mean, throws me off that's what Amanda Seals, uh, who I love, talks about. She's like, there are white people and there are people who happen to be white. And there are two very direct. I had somebody the other day on my Facebook timeline saying, people are just hating on white people now. And it's like, should I just not tell them I'm white? I was like, A, Stacy, you're white. We can tell. But, you know, B, why do you, it's the response to something like that that shows us you're white. Let's just happen to be white. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's rough. It's exactly. It's rough. I it's mean, a, it's an interesting friend. thing all the time. I do. And like when we go out places, it's always a very unique situation because, you know, he's, he's a sociable type guy. So he does a lot of talking and I don't do a lot of talking. I just observe everything. So we, you know, we're looking at the situation with completely different views every time, anywhere we go anywhere. So where he'll see something, he's like, man, that dude was racist. And I'm like, what did you see? He's like, oh, he didn't acknowledge you when you came in. 
And in my mind, I was like, wow, like, I'm, am I numb to these types of like levels of racism? Like, I didn't even, I didn't even see that he didn't see me, you know, because like, I just go do what I got to do and I go back in my house. But he's picking up on all these things. So, you know, and I've seen it go the other way also, where, you know, depending on where we are, he, we'll walk in together. Let's say we go to like a, a fish place, you know, downtown in the hood, and we walk in somewhere together. They're talking to me, looking at me. Oh, I'm sorry. They're talking to me, but they just won't take their eyes off him because they're just like, why is he in here? Right. And it's just like, and he's so, and he's so uncomfortable. And he's like, oh, is this is what like black people feel like when they walk in certain places where like super unwanted? I'm like, yeah. He's like, that shit sucks. (laughs) I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh crap. Like, like, so it's great for us. We learn a lot from, you know, being friends. Right. I was like, oh, one more thing I don't have to explain. You get it now. And it's, you know, we've grown up a lot, like, you know, together. So much so. Yeah, I think that those microaggressions, we're seeing them more now. I think people are, I think the collective, and I say we, but I think that a lot of us were awakened a lot earlier, but the collective is being, Mm -hmm. because we're being forced to sit and be still a little bit more, we're seeing things that we were just too busy and too all the work and all the life and all the things to really see. But I'm seeing, you know, fat phobia, transphobia, queer, you know, all, all homophobia. I'm seeing those microaggressions now when I am out mm-hmm. with any friend that is more androgynous or transgender and their front facing gender is not by choice, you know, somebody can't gender them. I immediately see like they will greet me and then they'll look, they'll just like look at my friend and try to figure. And that's so anxiety inducing. Or, you know, I'll be out with my daughter who is a, you know, a buck five, you know, ballerina, beautiful cover model, gorgeous. Not that I'm not, but I look very different. And I will, she will get and I will get like gawks and, you know, and she's definitely her dad's daughter. So she definitely flashes on people when she sees that we, but you know, it's like, she's, she's got a mouth. She's like, can I help you with something? Um, And I'm like, calm it, take it down a notch. Um, But you know, we see that in life now and it's like, it's so, but it's Mm -hmm. good because it's, it's not exactly call out cancel culture, but it's, bringing people to the table and making them accountable for their actions for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think you said, like you said, the, the slowing down of everything makes it easier for me to, you know, just like I tell anyone else, it's easier to learn under these circumstances because you don't have as much distraction where it's like, you know what, let me stay in and watch this documentary instead of going out to this party. Cause there is no party now, you know, it's like your options of what to do, have drastically been limited. It's like, you know, oh, this person's not going to come back in town for, you know, a year, six months. I got to go to this show. It's like, no, you can, somebody will record their their performance on Instagram for you. You know, you can watch it tomorrow. You know, everything has become a highlight. It's like, you can always watch everything tomorrow. So, you know, with that, it's, it does, you know, it does present some unique opportunities. And if you're not taking advantage of them, I'm just like, oh, what are you doing? I wish I had this much free time before. Now we finally get it, you know? Well, you know, I mean, because you've seen me, I'm, I've taken advantage of all of it. And I'm like, I am going to sit. <laughs> I'm going to finally work on myself, finally give myself some time. And I feel like, I feel like you were one of the only friends that would like, 
send me random DMs and go, looks like you found the key. Looks like you found the code. Look like you figured it out. And everyone, like every few weeks, every month, you were like, I'm just, I see that you found it. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. It's good to be seen. Like that's, it's what so many of us that had those, I mean, type A crazy lifestyles are doing now is kind of reinventing ourselves because we were able to go, whoa, I was covering so much of my life with just busyness and not working on myself that now I feel like oh, I'm yeah. going to jump into all of this a lot better. Of uh, You know, I kind of like to watch the world through the, you know, the holes of my oil painting. I just sit in the back <laughs> and I just watch everything. So, you know, I'm watching you go through everything and, you know, I'm going through my stuff as well. So, you know, you're, you had, you know, a couple different fires you were managing and jogging over here, trying to put out over here. And, you know, how do you transition phases from, you know, I'm going to schedule some, some East coast stuff. I got these dates lined up. I just finished this show. I just got back from a flight from over here. I'm like, Ooh, she's busy, you know? And then we go to, I live, haven't left the house in a month. Hmm. <laughs> you know, we're all trying to navigate that together. And so to now to see, you know, when I saw your first, uh, you know, your first podcast and I was like, that's genius. It's a genius way to keep, you know, the momentum of, you know, what you had built going. And, you know, it kind of inspired me as well, where I'm just like, all right, so I've got to find some way to keep, you know, the positivity going. And just, you know, I love to give that kind of like free, you know, unsolicited, you know, I see your work. I see it. And you don't know how much that matters to someone, you know. So in my personal life, I want to be that person for everyone else. I want to be that person for everyone else. I want to be that person for everyone else. So it's exciting to kind of get here on so many levels because I was like, I remember watching and being like so frustrated. Every time there was a new face, I was like, I can't wait till it's my turn. And then COVID happened. I was like, will I ever get my turn? I have to do it in a mask. <laughs> my face is a bit like... <laughs> My face isn't built for a mask. It's like, ah, it's not the same. It's not the same. And now to see that you transitioned it like almost into the perfect medium. I'm like, ah, this is awesome. This is awesome. I wish everyone could take advantage of the time like this. Yeah, I think, you know, and now I'm looking back and I even had one of my faces email me and said, I'm kind of jealous of these new faces because my whole story (laughs) wasn't recorded. So I don't get to like share that. Some people actually are, grateful because they don't want to share their stories because this is, you know, this opens a third wall. So, right. I just opened the fourth wall. The first time you get a little glimpse, you get a picture, but you don't know what happens in that studio. And now we're taking all of that away and people can be inside the studio and know it. And, you know, your pictures will still happen. One of the first places I'm going is the East coast. When I come back, when we, when we do this. Yeah. So your pictures need to happen. You know that side of it needs to happen. But um, you know, the I've always said I would be I would be such a hypocrite if I said I have to take pictures. But instead, I've I've always said um, that the pictures are secondary. They're the afterthought. They don't matter as much as the space itself matters. So I think thirty minutes into our interview, this is a perfect time to. Um, cut this to the next section. Um, but before we do that, let's do my lightning round questions for this segment. And then we'll, we'll move into the faces round because I want to get the lightning round are more personal anyways. So Ethan, what is your favorite curse word? 
There is nothing off limits, by the way. Like to have a favorite would say that I use it often, right? You know, that kind of, it has an implied value of often. You it for special. And I I like to, you know, I I like to charge per letter. So I don't like to talk a whole lot. This is probably the most (laughs) I've talked in like a month. Um, So I don't, I think my favorite curse word, and it's going to like, it hurts to say it because like every time you say it, it's one of those ones that like stops the room and like, what did he say? And, you know, the C word is probably my favorite curse word, but you can't ever use it. So it's just like, it's like. It's like fine, fine China of the curse word world where it sits in the display and collects dust because when you're using your fine China, it's like, this is serious. Like, and I try to let my life get there serious where I have to use that word. But whenever I do, it's like, that felt good because you always mean it. It's one of those words that you can't, you can't say it just on a whim. Like you don't call your friends that word. Like, I mean, you never England, do. In England they do. Yeah, but I mean, their their entire slang, you know, structure is different than ours. Yeah, a lot of their words are interchangeable, and you know, you can you can dress them up. There's no dressing up the c word. Yeah, I use it often. I use it mostly <laughs> negatively, um, but I do use it. So I try to reclaim it, but I do think that that's a great word. So it's it's difficult for for. I'm not the right gender to use it. And I just, it's one of those, like, it's like my silver bullet that I keep in the chamber. You know, whenever this conversation has gone on too long, boom, let me stop it with this. Cause nine, nine times out of 10, I've gone through all the other words before we ever get to that word. And once I'm ready to use it, I'm like, Ooh, I've invested too much emotion in this situation, you know? So I'd, I'd rather not use it, but it is my favorite. And it's your, it sounds like it's your fail safe to get out of something quickly. So that's good. You got to have a, you got to have an escape rope in your back pocket, you know, in any situation. Okay. I love that. All right. Your second question is, um, right now, you know, the pandemic is, is making it so that we all have to have like self-care things. Are you listening to any album all the time? Are you watching any movie that, that is like your, go-to self-care. I know music like Janae Aiko's album just like knocked me on my ass in the beginning of the quarantine and I haven't been able to stop listening to it. I tried Alicia Keys' new album, but ugh, only the single's good. <laughs> I was like, I, was, I love her so much. I was so excited. I was really high the other night and I was like, oh, this song with Khalid is so good. Like I want to listen to the whole album, press play, lay down in my bed, high as fuck and went, oh, Turning off, turning off, turning off, turning off. It's so bad, honey. What did she do? I don't know. And I've heard that about her album and it breaks my heart. (laughs) Really? Did you hear that from somebody else? It's like the auto tune. You're like maybe the third person. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyways, the single's good. (laughs) What are you listening to? Um... What's funny is early in the pandemic, um, I was listening to music and I was making, you know, playlists. Um, But, you know, my favorite artist is Drake. So you would think that I'd be listening to a lot of Drake, but he dropped like a a CD of like concepts and called it an album at the beginning of the pandemic. And then like every song is now like attached to a a memory 
that like turned sour. So I'm just like, okay, so I'm done with music. Like, so I haven't been listening to much music, but um, I've been, uh, I've been watching probably V for Vendetta, The Matrix and Twilight. That's been like my kind of cycle of music that I, of movies that I'm going through right now. Yeah. Okay, wait, we have to back up and unpack because (laughs) these are all choices I did not see coming for you at all. Okay, Um, that sounds about right though. The Matrix is great to revisit because of a few things, because of what's happening now in the world, A, because Mm -hmm. the directors have recently come out and said what that movie was about, which I think is Mm-hmm. fascinating to go back and watch it now. So I agree with that. V for Vendetta. Yes. Twilight I'm confused about because I love the Twilight series. I'm from Seattle. I just recently visited Forks. Like La Push is the most beautiful place I've ever been. Like that blew my mind. Uh, I was doing shrooms, but still, it still blew my mind. Right. Um, uh, to explain Twilight. Um, so I always break out in a big smile when I tell the story because it's hilarious. Um, so, uh, oh, where to begin? Like, I'm trying to condense it. All right. So um, my girlfriend and I, we love Twilight, you know, so uh, we recently have, you know, we got back together or we got together and, you know, we always, it always seems like one movie in particular will stand out where it's like, oh, all right. So we're watching this. Um, so I think Twilight was the first one of those movies and we ended up watching, like, I think we, we skipped through most of three cause it's trash, but you know, the first one in particular, you know, it's kind of, that's something we bonded over. Um, because, you know, we both feel, you know, how Edward and Bella feel. And it's just kind of, it's kind of funny that, you know, we kind of came back and it, you know, we're watching it. And then, you know, she kind of drops the book, uh, Midnight Sun. That's from Edward's point of view. And, you know, so we're reading the book together and, you know, Twilight's one of those I where, you know, I haven't started Vendetta, reading it yet, but I have it. It's good. It's good. Um, it? But, you know, V for Vendetta, obviously. Y'all, are you kidding me? It's 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 much more interesting than from my from my perspective, from the men's per, the man's perspective with, you know, his particular situation being a vampire and, you know, not having to eat, not having to sleep, you know, that that feeling of new love. I couldn't imagine how overwhelmed I would be if I didn't have to worry about eating, sleeping, working, school. Like those things aren't important. You have only this one thing to focus on. So from that perspective, like, and you've, it's just like, it's riveting. Like I could not put it down um, when I first started reading it. So um, it, all those things came together at the same time. So, you know, she, she and I got back together. Then we realized we both love Twilight. Then we watch it. And then, you know, after that weekend I leave, the book comes out. So that's been kind of like my sunshine in my in my movie mix. You know, the, the Matrix I love, that's like, you know, my Bible. And then Beaver and Vendetta is super relevant. Um, so all those things together, that little mix, I've been watching those things kind of, it's on in the background. I'm doing laundry, you know, I'm working out and I have it on my phone. So even as I'm running and training, I'm listening to the movie as I'm running. Um, so those three have kind of been on repeat. I love that. Now we have more things to talk about offline. Now we have <laughs> movies that we can watch together, like talk about now I need to start this book. I haven't started it. Um, wow. Yeah. I just learned something new about you, sir. Nice job. Um, okay. <laughs> Next one. Um, if you could have lunch 
with your younger self? Oh, actually, first, that's the last question. The next one is um, oh. name two people that have inspired you to be who you are today that are not white, cis, heterosexual men, because I'm sure that's not a problem. But <laughs> I just think they get too much um, attention right now. <laughs> okay. Um, I would have to say, uh, definitely like my boss at work, um, she has kind of been, I've watched her grow, you know, because I met her when I was in high school, she came in and she kind of took over for one of my teachers and she was like fresh. That was like her first year. So I saw a very like raw, unrefined version of her that was, um, aggressive in her approach. Um, so, you know, fast forward years later, um, you know, I kind of a mutual friend was like, hey, you know, she needs some help. You know, it might be a good fit for you. And she kind of gave me, you know, she took a chance on me. She knew the person I was and the person I had, you know, she had heard about, you know, after my years in high school. And, you know, she took a chance on me bringing me into a school setting that's, you know, it's a very high risk setting. You know, it's not like, you know, any other job, you know, especially as a parent, you do understand that the gravity of being responsible for other people's children is, you know, it's, it's intense. It's a high pressure environment. Um, so for her to take a chance on me and trust me um, to come into that environment and then to see how she handles some of the things that came up. Um, she is someone I always want to, you know, emulate and, you know, try to take some of her plays and put them in my playbook, uh, you know, as a recipe for success. So that's one. Uh, two. Two. That's tough. That's a tough one. Um, hmm. They can be men. They just can't be white. Right. And there's so many that come to mind um, that really kind of just, it stood out to me. So for me, it was just, and it's not for the main reasons of most people, but, you know, when Kobe passed, that was a big deal at my school. Um, And I was not particularly a Kobe fan. You know, I'm from the Jordan era. And I just personally saw, you know, Kobe as a copycat who's, you know, ultimate in my perspective, like his ultimate legacy was that of failure. And while, you know, people look like, Eton, that's so negative. I'm like, but failure is the greatest teacher, you know, like, and Kobe, you know, he exemplified that. So for me, you know, coming to school that next day, uh, you know, and I live around the corner from my, or I live around the corner from where I work. So I'm walking to school that day. I got a cover for a teacher and I see one of my students get off the bus he doesn't like, he's not looking around for traffic. He's standing at the light right across and I'm walking towards him. He takes, he puts his book back on the ground and he pulls out his Kobe Jersey and puts it on. And this is like, a, this is like an eighth grader, but he's like, I was like, you don't know, like you never got to watch Kobe in his prime, you know? Like, so right. it's weird. And he's like super, he's super emotional. And you know, my, I have friends who are, you know, on the basketball team calling out a word cause they can't get themselves together. And I'm like, what are you guys doing, man? Like celebrities die every day. This isn't a big deal, you know? So, you know, I was just like, get, get over it. Like it's tragic, but you know, I didn't understand the, the, like the hype was so intense. Like my whole school was down and I could not understand wow. it. So um, that's that following Sunday, I'm with my oldest daughter and, you know, she was, she said something and somehow she kind of just flippantly said, yeah, I know dad. Cause Kobe died. And I was like, do you know anything about Kobe? She was like, I know he played basketball. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to have my kid out here, like not knowing who certain people are. Like, you know, this is important. So, you know, we sat down and I went to YouTube and I pulled up like a 
35, I think maybe 45 minute Kobe tribute video. And, you know, as we're watching it, I'm having to pause it because she's like, all right, so dad, before we go any further, explain to me, this is basketball. I know that explain to me the game real quick. And so, you know, periodically I'm having to explain certain things to, you know, my eight year old. And as the, you know, we're getting deeper and deeper and deeper. She, she starts like, you know, we're getting to the end where he wins his last championship. And, you know, then, you know, she's like, hold on, pause it, dad. I was like, okay. Like I pause it and I look over, I'm like, what's up? And she starts doing pushups. And I'm like, what's going on, kiddo? She's like, I can do that too. I was like, do what? She's like, I can be better than Kobe. And she's just like, I got to start training now though. And she gets on the ground and she knocked out like 10 pushups quick. And she's like, all right, press play. She got her heart rate up and she's standing there with little glasses and sliding off. She is your daughter. She is your daughter. (laughs) (laughs) She slides her little glasses up with her hands on her hip. And I'm sitting on the couch, like looking at her, just like, you didn't know who Kobe was an hour ago. And within that, that, by the end of that video, like I have tears coming down my eyes because the example that Kobe set of like never taking your foot off the gas and like never giving up, like my daughter was able to understand that and not only understand it, but she, she felt motivated by it. She was like, I can be better. And I was like, that's what Kobe would have wanted. So, you know, for me, that's when it became personal. That's when I was just like, oof, Kobe's gone. Like, you know, and I started crying and I was just like, oh, damn it. This dude got me. He got me, you know, he invaded my home and he planted his stupid seed of, you know, mama mentality in my daughter. And, you know, I'm excited about it because it does take like a, a special individual to, to understand, you know, the things that Kobe was saying. And, you know, a lot of people look up to him, but a lot of people aren't like that. You know, for me, I didn't get the hype because right. I was already like that. I was in, I was insane to the point where, you know, I'm going to injure myself. You know, I was that kind of athlete, put my body on the line. I didn't care. So I understood it. That wasn't a revelation for me. So I didn't get that on the surface appeal of Kobe. But, you know, to see my daughter, like, pick it up and run with it. I mean, she's on the ground, like, wanting to lift weights. And I'm just like, sweetie, like, we're not at weightlifting yet. Like, we got to get our push-up form down. So she's got me on the ground doing push-ups. And I'm just like, now I get it. Now I get it. You know, when you see on the news, you know, the thousands of people out at the Staples Center, you know, just weeping. And, you know, I didn't get it until that moment. So, you know, for me, that probably be my second person is, you know, in his death, I'm understanding now, um, you know, that Mamba mentality. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that I was here for it. And I can talk about it. Uh, some of those moments and kind of give my daughter perspective, you know, with people that she knows, uncles and aunts and cousins who, you know, I shared those moments with. She's like, oh, so you guys got to watch that game together? You and great granddad? Like, you know, she developed a relationship to Kobe in that moment. I'm she, just got like, she got it. I she got it. She got it. She got it. And I was so excited. I was like, oh, this is awesome. But of course she did. She's your kid. She's sharp. Like I've heard her banter with you two back and forth. It's adorable, (laughs) but it definitely is. I love that answer. And I think, well, of course I got an authentic answer from you. It's you. So, but still, (laughs) okay. Your last question. This is hard. Um, If you could have lunch with your younger self, what age would you be? First of all, second of all, what would you tell yourself? And lastly, what would you two have for lunch together? What would you make him eat that he probably wouldn't eat back then? This is an amazing question. Um, I think I'd probably want to talk to 12-year-old me. 12-year-old me is probably the, the one I'd want to have a sit down with. 
Um, what would we eat? There, there's no way that you could convince a 12 year old me to eat vegetarian. Um, but I would expose, I would expose him to, uh, to tofu. Uh, maybe, maybe Seton, like, you know, some other like meat substitute. I'd trick him and give him some like, you know, general so's, you know, tofu or something to sneak it on him and not tell him what it was and just have him eat it, you know, but the 12 year old me, he'd probably be the one. That was kind of that okay. point where, um, like, and this is why the, I love the matrix so much. You know, that scene where like, you know, Neo, he wakes up in the tube of like, you know, jelly and he pulls the cords out and he's looking around and he's seeing all, you know, he wakes up for real in the real world. You know, that I think that 12, that's when I had that moment. And I would love to just ease up to 12 year old naked, bald headed me like, hey, let me talk to you real quick. And, you know, we go have our, uh, our tofu experiment for lunch and try to, you know, help him at that point. Um, cause it is, I think that age is where it became like, oof, this is overwhelming. What cause that, I think it was that when you were 12, um, that I could, that I could do it. You know, I had, you know, I always joke that there's, you know, I love Rick and Morty. Uh, it's, you know, my favorite like cartoon. <laughs> so, you know, he has the council of Ricks where there's like 12 of these guys. They're all the same person, but they're from, you know, slightly different uh, you know, universes or timelines. So as I was saying, you know, the seven councils of Eton that are in here, the seven different, you know, I guess, ideologies, you know, they were, they were you know, they're starting to whisper me at 12, 13, 14, you know, you're great, right? Like, they're, like, you're unique. You're not like the rest of these people. And it took me so long to believe it. And, you know, I would, you know, try to tell him, this, like, yo, they're not lying. Like, you're better than a lot of these people. Like, you can do great things. You know, because I think at 12, I was, understanding it i first heard the whisper in this ear but then you know the avalanche of doubt and like understanding how the world works coming in this ear drowning it out so you know at 12 you know you want to kind of jump in there before that seed gets planted too deep i love that i love that answer well we're going to transfer over to your official faces of fortitude session are you feeling ready i'm ready Thank you for listening and stay tuned for part two of Etan's interview. The Faces of Fortitude session is coming up shortly.